each of their lives surprised me. Part of the fun of the exercise of writing the book was to really get to know them as characters. Who, who were the people who enabled such extraordinary creations, such extraordinary feats of the imagination, feats of the, uh, the human intellect? Over and over again, I was just struck about how how human they were um, and how fallible and how venal and how petty and how funny uh, in, in so many ways. All right. What's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. And honestly, it's really good. It's where I publish my best work. I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter. And I honestly think it's the coolest newsletter in the world. And it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. And also when you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, everybody, I am here with William Eginton. His newest book is called The Rigor of Angels, Borges, Heisenberg, Kant, and the Ultimate Nature of Reality. William is a professor at Johns Hopkins, and he's also written very interesting books in the past as well, which might come up a little bit today. But first of all, William, just want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Justin, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to talk about your new book, which I very much enjoyed reading. I would say the main conceit of the book is that these three different thinkers, Borges, Heisenberg, and Kant, working in different disciplines, different places, all come to the same conclusion uh, around the same time. And essentially, that conclusion is, to put it in my own words, something like the, the, that reality contains these, what you call crevices of unreason, these eternal crevices of unreason, and that no matter how hard we try to comprehend the world, there will always remain these irreducible pockets of paradox and uncertainty, in large part introduced by ourselves as observers. Is there anything you would add or subtract to that just as a starting point for the conversation? No, that's a really nice kind of summation of what I'm trying to do in the book. The one thing I would say is that Heisenberg, as it turns out of these three characters that I'm writing about and telling the stories of, Heisenberg, the physicist, and Borges, the poet and short story writer, they lived more or less about the same historical time period, right? Very end of beginning, end of 19th, beginning of 18, uh, 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 beginning of the 20th century, their lives spanning almost to the end of the 20th century, to the 1970s in Heisenberg's case, 1980s in Borges' case. And both of them had a relationship to Kant who died like a century earlier. So there's kind of a triangle in time with Kant having come to these things first, and then the poet and the, and the physicist both having a relationship to Kant, but them living these lives that largely didn't touch each other, but ended up from very different perspectives, like you were saying, from very, very different fields, coming to remarkably similar conclusions about the nature of reality and our relationship to it. Okay, excellent. Excellent. That That's an important wrinkle there. And the title of the book, The Rigor of Angels, is an allusion to Borges, who says that there is rigor in the world, but it is the rigor of chess masters, not of angels. So I want to unpack that a little bit, because it's kind of interesting when you read just Borges, he could mean that the rigor that rigor is just not the business of angels but you seem to you said the, the title of the book is kind of implying that uh what he really means is that there is a rigor of angels what is the rigor of angels i would love i would love for for you to explain in your own in your own perspective you know what uh, what what is that rigor that is practiced by angels 
So it's it's a really great question. And the title is one that came to me. This is, I have to say, of all the books I wrote, the one that took me the longest to get to the title. And then when it came to me, I, I said to myself, well, look at this. I had a paper that I'd given like 20 years earlier that had this title that I had borrowed or, or stolen really from Borges. This was in front of my eyes the whole time. This is what the book needs to be about. And as you point out, it's kind of in some ways uh, a negative or 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 a, a, the the, uh, the the inverse impression of a title in a way. Because what Borges says at the end of this marvelous story, and when I teach it to my students, I sometimes refer to it as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, short story in my opinion ever written. Fern Buchbar Orbis Tertius, and the book begins, in fact, with an epigraph from that uh, from that book that I the very epigraph that I take the title from. At the end of this remarkable story, Borges talks about he sort of projects himself into the future. He talks about a world that has been taken over by an idea. Uh, it's like this uh, this it's conspiracy theory of conspiracy theories in a way, and the idea that he gets that and he says it's something that that. That, that we're all always bewitched by is the possibility of some deeper meaning that's going to explain absolutely everything to us. And this is what he calls this rigor of angels, right? And the rigor of angels is essentially our desire, which is ineradicable in ourselves, to believe that ultimately the world is stitched, to and stitched together in some fundamental, reasonable, rational way that transcends us, but that's there waiting for us. And it's there waiting for us in a language that we can explain and a language that we can intimately grasp. And what he tried, what he says at the end of that story is humanity forgets and forgets again that there, although there is rigor out there, it's a rigor of angels. It's a rigor of chess masters, not of angels, not of angels, right? So it's our belief. We have this faith. We have this desire for the rigor that we find in the world to be independent of us, to be out there. It's waiting for us. But in fact, we're constantly erasing our own work in creating that rigor. That's the difference, right? We do the rigor and then we work as hard as we can to erase our own footprints and to, and, and to forget that we were there in the first place creating, we're the measure of the world in a way. It's our intellect that puts it together and we put it together for with our own tools and for our own understanding. Yeah, I like that. It actually reminds me of some of your previous books. It seems like you've been grappling with this question for a long time, this, the, these questions about the, the antinomies of reality. And it seems to me if I'm correct, if, you know, if, if, if I may say so, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that you seem to think that really art is the solution to, to these problems at the end of the day, that, that we don't solve them intellectually. We, we don't solve them um, on paper, but we solve them through creativity, through artistic practice. Um, you have a book about Cervantes, and I think you kind of read him as, as, you know, pioneering fiction as a kind of solution to these problems. You have a book about Baroque theater. You, you say that, you know, it's the theater of truth and that the, these questions of truth are, are kind of negotiated uh, in these various art forms. Um, is, am, am I right to sense that? Th is this where you come down ultimately on, on this question? Well, in a way, yes, in the sense that, as you, Justin, are so correctly pointing out over the last... 20 to 30 years, I've been writing books largely from the perspective of the history of literature, the history of poetics, of, of aesthetics. But one of the points that I'm trying to 
really hammer home in this book is that these truths are available from a variety of different perspectives. And this is the first book in which I've really in depth gone into what you would call a hard scientific perspective by really working out um, the, the, the what's called in philosophy, found, you know, working from the perspective of foundations of physics. So fundamental questions in, uh, in physics, and in this case, quantum mechanics, and to a certain extent, relativity as well. But that is something that I've been working on uh, both in my reading, my writing, my thinking, but also in my teaching for, uh, you know, for, again, close to 30 years. It was it, it was just time to finally put it out there in this book in an extended, rigorous way. And to, you know, ultimately what you were getting at when you when you summarize the book so well is to show or to create a kind of even platform for all three of these different perspectives, right? These different human perspectives, one coming from observation and the natural sciences, another coming from just deep thought, thinking through the, what Kant would call the conditions of possibility of perceiving anything in the first place, and the other from storytelling, narrative, poetry, language, uh, and how, how, yes, in my own work, I've come over and over again to the idea that art reveals these truths to us. That's absolutely true. But I wanted to show that it didn't have to be exclusively art, that you can come to these truths through uh, through very rigorous thought of the nature of a great, great philosopher like Kant, or truly extraordinary leaps of, uh, of, of observation and science, as, as Heisenberg did. Okay, great. Yeah, that makes sense. You've kind of been building up to these ideas for a while, and this was your attempt to really yeah. try to look at the hard science of it. And uh, that's interesting. And, you know, there are a lot of really interesting and surprising details in the book about the lives of these these three thinkers and of how they came to their ideas. But you really do attempt to make this a kind of sweeping answer to the, the some of the big questions in life about the nature of reality, about uh, free will versus determinism, or, you know, whether reality is discrete or continuous. You know, th these are kind of the big questions that you you point this book at and, and you hope to, through your reading of Borges and Heisenberg and Kant, uh, shed some light on, on these big fundamental questions. So I'm curious to ask you, you know, how did writing the book change your mind on these topics? Did you, when you finished the book, did you kind of update your probability of free will? You know, uh, did you increase that probability or did you decrease that probability or, or, or maybe some other related question? What were the biggest changes in your beliefs that were updated in the, in the process of writing this book? No, oh, that's such a great question. It's such a great question. Um, yes, in many ways I did. And, and I think the most important thing that this book allowed me to do or forced me to do was to challenge some of my own beliefs, um, because these are really hard thinkers to grapple with. Um, the, the question of Heisenberg and free will, uh, this is an absolutely brilliant one. Uh, I went back and forth with a philosopher friend of mine, a colleague of mine, uh, we talked about this and he said, he said, you know, this is, this is really hard to understand how you can bring Kant together, uh, Kant to in some ways, um, certainly in his mechanistic view of the of, of the universe, really had a, what you could call a Laplacian understanding, right? We mentioned uh, uh, the great, uh, 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 really philosopher of science, uh, uh, Laplace, who had posited this demon, the Laplacian demon, right? The idea that if this all-knowing demon were to know the position and movement of, of, of every particle in the universe at every time, there'd be no such thing as free will because you'd be able to know every single step from here on to eternity of, of what's going to happen to everything. And, and Kant, in some ways, and this is really true, his mechanistic understanding of the universe absolutely um, 
he, he absolutely buys that. Whereas Heisenberg himself says, you know, my biggest contribution at a philosophical level is the destruction of this notion of, of a Laplacian universe, because he says, it's not just that you can't know what's going to happen. Knowledge of the present for us or for the demon itself is completely impossible because if to know one of the of, of these two poles of knowledge in the particular case of the particle, it might be uh, time and energy or it might be position and momentum, most famously position and momentum to know one where the delta is down to zero. So, you know, absolutely perfect means you have literally no idea of the other one. Right. You don't. But neither does the demon. There is no uh, no way of knowing that. If that's the case, how can these two positions be uh, be reconciled? This was one of the most difficult things that I had to uh, to wrestle with, and it was my you know going back and reading Kant in a truly deep way to understand that Kant himself had already wrestled with that, even without anything approximating the mathematical uh, and observational physics that led Heisenberg to be able to put this problem in neat mathematical notation as he did in 1925 and then 1927 in his uh, two most famous uh, uh, equations. Kant was intuiting this already. That's what the antinomies, that's what the whole second part of the critique of pure reason is showing us, that essentially we can we, we can posit something like a Laplacian notion of the, of the world. In fact, we, we can assume that is the absolute case. But in order to do so, any individual knowing that has to be God, and we can't possibly think like God. And in fact, not only that, God himself can't exist in the world like we can. So there's an absolute disjunction between those, but those those two positions, which means there ultimately is no uh, 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 mutual exclusion between the idea of a mechanistic world and freedom, because believing that there is means implicitly adopting a godlike perspective, which is in fact antithetical to human being per se. Okay, fascinating. So it sounds like it sounds like your reading basically allows for these contradictory viewpoints to all hold at the same time. That 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 that's going to be your answer to these questions about you know is space continuous or discrete? Is there free will or is there mechanism? Your it sounds like uh, the way this book cashes out and the way it, it cashes out in your own perspective is that these are durable antinomies. They're kind of on both sides of these. Uh, paradoxes or these uh, contradictions, both are both sides are true, and that's kind of what's what's interesting about this. Is that fair to say, or is that too? Am I being too uh, loose? No, no, I think you're not being too loose at all. A durable antinomy is a really way of put, a really good way of putting it. When you think these problems, or wh whether you think them to their extreme, or you observe them to your to their extreme the antinomies of knowledge are going to emerge. There's no way to avoid that. They're going to emerge in poetics. That's what Borges shows. They're going to emerge in philosophy, which is what Kant had already first intuited in his early life and then ultimately rigorously went on to show. And then what Heisenberg did so amazingly was he showed that they were the result. You could actually put a mathematics to them. You could actually uh, put put numbers to them and calculate them. And that's that's the extraordinary thing that happens here. So to to not speak too abstractly, we can go back to that question of the antinomy that arises between mechanis mechanistic knowledge of the world, right? The idea that that every step that we take, um, uh, since we're living in a world in which um, one thing leads to another and we're in the flow of, of, of mechanistic determination, hence something like free will must be impossible. And there are physicists with, with whom I debate in this book who absolutely believe that. 
um, uh, versus the idea that at each and every step along the way, as rational beings, we have a choice to make, right? I can believe in a mechanistic uh, universe, but either right now I'm going to stay seated or because I feel I'm a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit stiff in my legs, I can make a decision and stand up one or the other. It's my decision to make it. Um, the, the, the determinist will say, yeah, yeah, your, uh, your decision. All of these things are firing off in your uh, in your brain. If we put um, some some uh, uh, detectors into your brain, we could even have an AI that would be able to tell you microseconds before you've actually made the decision what you're going to do or not. What Kant realized, and actually he was not the first to realize it, but he put it into rigorous form that um, that that philosophers since the Neoplatonics, in fact, had realized um, was. You know, this, this problem had all been worked out before. And the, the figure that I go back and talk about is Boethius. Uh, what Boethius said, and he didn't have any idea of an AI or any idea of brain, you know, putting nodes in your brain and kind of having a machine figure out what you're going to be doing. But he came up with kind of a much better version than that, which is God himself, right? If God is all knowing, uh, and, and God knows every step of the, of, uh, that every one of us is going to take throughout time, how in the world can we be said to be free? Um, well, he and all the other Neoplatonics came up with uh, this extremely innovative answer that till today, people just, it's very hard to grasp, which is, yeah, both can be absolutely true. There can be such a thing as a God, as an all-knowing God, just as we can assume something like a mechanistic universe that, 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 that guides our actions from the beginning of time to the end of time. And perfectly compatible with that, and in fact is what philosophers call the compatibilist notion of free will, uh, at each step along the way, free rational agents can be acting with more or less constraint uh, uh, in a way that is, that is uh, uh, so to speak, undetermined, that we can make decisions that are uh, our own to make. And, and how do we know that's true or, or, or how, do I, how do I make space for that within a completely deterministic universe or within a predestined universe in the sense of, of God or a God who knows every step of my emotions from beginning up to, uh, beginning up to the end of time is, this is what Boethius said, for something like a God to exist and to know all time eternally from the beginning of the end. Time doesn't exist for that being the same way that it does for us. It's not something that you're in. It's all at once. So yes, God, we can imagine, knows everything, but he knows it all at once at the same time. So every single move or decision we're making is made, we're doing so in an eternal present for God, which means it's perfectly compatible. God can be seeing everything that we're doing and we're still free to be making those decisions. And there's absolutely no contradiction as long as you see it that way. Hmm? Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. And if art is the way that we practically move through these antinomies, if, if, if artistic self-cultivation and, and artistic moving through the world is the way that we as human beings just find ways to move forward despite the, these antinomies, I'm curious to know your opinion about in the kind of post-Borges period, you know, who does this best? Who, who, who do you see as the, the most genius or brilliant uh, art artists, whether it's writers or in the plastic arts or, or you answer however you want, who in the, who takes these insights of Borges and Heisenberg and Kant and embodies them or dramatizes them most brilliantly um, after these kind of discoveries are made? It's, it's another great question. And, and we could just start listing and tossing ideas back and forth to each other, but, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you some of my ideas, but, but, do take with a grain of salt and just know that these are 
the, the personal preferences and of, of someone with his own set of kind of obsessions and interests. And, uh, and, and there's, you know, you can come from all sorts well, of, that's different what I want to know from all sorts of, yeah, from all sorts of different, uh, cultures. Um, what do I do in my evenings to relax? Often what I'm doing is I'm listening to jazz. So for me, some of the great jazz artists of the, uh, of the late 20th century, just yesterday, I was re-listening uh, re to some of John Coltrane's albums, for example, Blue Train. I told my kids, this for me is probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest uh, albums ever made. I'm listening to the way that Coltrane and his musicians um, uh, create patterns what we could call rigor out of seemingly nothing right there that they, they don't each of them don't know exactly what the other is going to do but they're listening and reacting and out of that that in the in the in the moment listening and reacting they've got an idea they're following that idea they're departing from it they're coming back together again and then they weave together out of time and out of rhythm and out of vibrations and sound this extraordinary work of art that I want to revisit and revisit again. And each time my experience of it is, wow, God himself couldn't have made it more perfect than that. And yet what I'm, I'm, I'm witnessing is a pure act of human of, of creation. So like, that's just one example, but you're absolutely right. What does great art do? It reminds us over and over again, that we sit at this juncture at this pinnacle between these these you know essentially these these impossible uh uh, uh pressures one that we are embodied in the world that we don't we, you know we're not a humunculus living behind the screen that's guiding our, our actions we're actually our intelligence our creativity is always coming out of the moment and yet there it is it's still intelligence it's still creativity it's still anima in some way Hey, everybody. This is just a quick interruption to invite you to the new Other Life community. We are now really moving in the direction of a network state. It's pretty crazy. We will give you a fully-fledged personal server and a special desktop application from our partners at the Hollywood Company, which will let you and all of the members in the community compute together on the peer-to-peer sensor-proof Urbit network. It's still early, but it's insanely cool. If you're into the Other Life ethos, like if you're a writer or a software developer or whatever, if you're all about freedom and self-reliance outside of institutions, then we want to meet you. The community is now totally free to join. We have other ways now of filtering and sorting people later based on their abilities. It's kind of like the USA of the 1840s. Anyone can get on a ship and go to America, but only some would rise the ranks depending on what they were able to do. To join, just go to otherlife.co forward slash join. That's otherlife.co forward slash join. One common theme on this podcast is that of the practical life of mm -hmm. writers and thinkers. And your book is filled with lots of interesting biographical details. And, and you write in this kind of uh, literary nonfiction style that um, leans very heavily on just the stories of, of, these, of these individuals' lives. So, you know, we have a lot of writers in the audience, especially independent writers, you know, whether it's people writing newsletters or podcasts or whatever, people kind of participating in the, the kind of independent cultural economy today. And I'm just kind of curious from becoming more familiar with the lives of these three thinkers, was there anything that surprised you or stood out to you in terms of just how they conducted their work, how they built their projects, maybe even, you know, the, this, this perennial uh, difficulty that, that thinkers of all stripes always have of, you know, managing their, the time dedicated to their work versus the time paying the bills and to their family. And, and th these, these are questions yeah. that often come up in the podcast and me and my audience are often 
uh, studying and thinking about for our own purposes and navigating, you know, the cultural economy today. Was there anything that surprised you about the lives of these three thinkers and how they conducted their work? Yeah. So in fact, pretty much everything about uh, each of their lives surprised me. I, 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 every, every step of the way that I went deeper into their lives, I would find things that I didn't expect. I, I began with a sort of surface knowledge of each of these characters. I knew much more about their writing in the case of Borges or their physics in the case of Heisenberg, philosophy in the case of Kant, and I did about their lives. So for me, part of the fun of the exercise of writing the book was to really get to know them as characters. Who, who were the people who enabled such extraordinary creations, such extraordinary feats of the imagination, feats of the, uh, the human intellect. And uh, over and over again, I was just struck about how how human they were um, and how fallible and how venal and how petty and how funny uh, in, in so many ways. Uh, uh, Borges, you know, as I make clear from the beginning of the story, was just, he was, he was a miserable nebbish most of the time. I mean, he was uh, just constantly in love, such a romantic, uh, um, uh, most likely didn't actually have, uh, uh, you know, true, uh, meaningful, uh, 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 sex with a woman until much, much, much later in his life. And yet he was constantly overwhelmingly, uh, uh, fatally in love with one, one woman after the other. And you think to yourself, someone who's spending all of this time just dwelling in kind of in, in the depths of his, of his often negative emotions, how did he end up producing works like this? And really you see that, well, they, they went hand in hand in a way, right? He was in some ways allowing his imagination to do what his imagination was able to do and precisely because he was reaching out of the, of the depths of his misery to try and grasp onto these anchors of, uh, of, 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 in his case, he began to really think about problems of eternity and time and space and, and then start to explore them as if he were uh, himself a character in one of these mini uh, uh, science fictions that he was creating. In the case of uh, in the case of Kant, um, you could really see we all, you know, anyone who studied philosophy knows sort of the basics of oh, Kant uh, was was such a steady character that you could uh, you could keep you could uh, set your watch to him by his uh, by his walks in Königsberg, and, and that he didn't explore much beyond his uh, his world. But you know what was extremely uh, uh, gratifying to read about was um, was what a, what a man about town. Kant was, how adored he was in Königsberg, how people looked up, up to him from, from, from early on, um, uh, but also um, what a hypochondriac he was, just constantly worried about his digestion, about his, uh, his physical frailness, and yet he lived 30 years beyond some of his, uh, his contemporaries, so he's in fact quite robust lived into a very old age and, and, and very, in a very sad kind of tragic way, uh, died at the end of a period of, uh, of real senility, um, that he, you know, the greatest mind of his generation, perhaps someone would say the greatest mind of any generation suffered from Alzheimer's and, uh, and stopped being able to remember, uh, things at the end of his life. And, um, and his urge to remember was so strong. He would go around, um, uh, writing everything down on pieces of paper, uh, in, in what ended up to be almost like a Dada dance of absurdity with, uh, with one little reminder left about another and then left about another. Um, and then Heisenberg was, uh, so athletic, so competitive. You would think that this guy was, uh, was, 
um, was really, uh, I say, you know, some people talk about someone who's good at everything and really put their effort into everything and kind of outstanding and is a Boy Scout. Boy Scout. Well, he literally was a Boy Scout and he was a Boy Scout who others uh, looked up to and he would lead them on, uh, on, on these expeditions when he was a young man and, uh, and an extraordinary skier. But on top of that, also uh, could have been a concert pianist uh, uh, and would even, you know, as his career was blossoming, he would have uh, 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 evenings in which he would be playing uh, uh, beautiful pia uh, piano pieces for uh, for his friends as they uh, as they gathered around. Extremely well read. Uh, of course, he could uh, argue Kantian philosophy with the top uh, uh, philosophers uh, in, in his own country. Um, uh, and at the same time, could um, could read uh, uh, ancient Greek uh, philosophy. So one of the lessons that I came out of this with was nowadays we train ourselves to be the best possible thinkers if you're when i say we sort of university types right our universities expect of us and this is something that i've written about in, in some of my previous books as well to be the best possible thinkers in some of the narrowest possible ways but these great world-changing thinkers and i don't just limit myself to the three of them i talk about a lot of others in the book as you know but they, none of them were like that they were really people who thought deeply about big questions in all sorts of ways. And they enriched their spirits with, uh, and their intellects with art, with reading, with thought, with conversation, constant conversation. Heisenberg and his, and his friends, they would, they would ski, they would go out to diners and eat together. They would talk constantly about the biggest questions of physics at the time to the point where the the lady at the at the uh um at the diner that they would go to to sit around and talk would finally say listen you guys are gonna have to stop top, stop talking about physics at the top of your lungs all the time because it's driving my guests away i love that this point about the kind of just authentic conviviality and the kind of just obsessively curious joyful sociality involved in this kind of brilliant life of the mind, which is very hard to sustain for some people. And, you know, you've, I think, done a pretty good job in your own career of maintaining a, a wide latitude of freedom for yourself, you know, despite being an academic. And a lot of people really struggle with this, especially people who pursue academic careers, because as you alluded to, all of the career incentives really are towards specialization. So maybe you could speak to this a little bit, you know, what do you think in, in the in the current kind of technological, social economic yeah. environment for scholars, thinkers, intellectuals of, of various kinds. What do you think are the keys to maintaining this kind of authentic, uh, vivacious intellectual conviviality and, and curiosity and kind of generalist passion that, that you're describing and which I think you've, you've done a good job of maintaining for yourself. What's, what's the trick to that? What's the key to that today? Well, I think it's going to come down a lot to university leadership, right? And you're, and thank you very much for making that point about my own work. And it's something that I've been trying, you know, really hard to do for a long time. But, uh, but we often find in university settings in particular that it's, you're fighting, you know, you're, you're swimming upstream when you're trying to make these points. And I understand, look, in a lot of fields, one will say, you know, if you're not just doing focused work on just where you, you know, on just this particular question, then the chances are that your own work is going to get out strip someone's going to scoop you someone's going to make the next uh you know major discovery in um in biomechanical engineering that's going to then set that department apart and make it the standard and you know and i get that i get the pressures involved 
at the same time, in particular in the fields that I represent, right, the, the humanities, um, it seems to me that we're doing ourselves a disservice when we try and, and model ourselves on that kind of a set of expectations. Because I really think what the humanities in particular have always been about is making connections, connecting what you're doing at this particular time with the greater world and connecting with other people uh, in both a convivial way, like you were saying, but in a persuasive way, it's teaching others, uh, your students, for example, about argumentation, about discourse, about being open to other perspectives. Um, and, and in some sense, and this is what the point that I was making in part in that book um, from 2018, The Splintering of the American Mind, is that there's a mirroring effect in between hyper-specialization in, in academia and the fact that we be, have become less capable of talking to each other in the broader social, uh, political uh, uh, field, right? That the sense that, well, what we're really about is making ourselves more and more comfortable in our little worlds, as opposed to actually breaking out of those and challenging ourselves and making ourselves feel a little bit uncomfortable. So I think it's important to me uh, and I and I don't want to say that, you know, that it's important to me that everyone feel uncomfortable, like in my seminar or something like that. That's not what that is, that is about. But it is about, like to give you an example, I, I, I enjoy teaching this so much that I'm coming around and teaching almost the same thing again. It's a first year seminar around some of the issues that you and I are discussing today, the poets, physicists, philosophers, and the ultimate nature of reality. And I would hold it for two and a half hour sessions. Uh, uh, every week, these are 18 and 19 year olds coming into this kind of an environment for the first time, sitting with me for two and a half hours. And, uh, and, you know, we get up at the end of the session, I'd be like, well, this is completely exhausting. And they'd say, yeah, but we, we need this, right? It's, it's this two and a half hour kind of existential crisis that we're facing every week, but we're doing it together and, and talking through these things and exposing ourselves and asking questions and wrestling with the biggest possible questions. Um, this to me is what education is all about. But then, and this is the point that I wanted to make, it becomes a model, not just for what education is all about. It's not just something that I'm trying to offer to the students per se. It's something for me and a, a model for how I think we should be pursuing knowledge in the humanities altogether, which is exposing ourselves in this particular case, not maybe just to uh, each other in a seminar room, but exposing ourselves to new ways of thinking. We should be reading outside of our carefully curated boxes. We should be uh, encountering art that uh, that that shocks and uh, uh, you know undermines certain of our expectations. We should be uh, uh, exposing ourselves to use that word again in all sorts of intellectual and aesthetic ways. And I firmly believe that doing so is potentially, and perhaps even more than potentially, right? It's extremely beneficial for all walks of intellectual life, even those ones where we think we're serving ourselves better by staying micro-focused, by staying hyper-specialized, because that's one of the lessons that we get from these great thinkers, in particular the ones that I discuss in the physical sciences. And as you know, I'm, I'm really exploring the world of early 20th century, the great generation of, of physicists. And these guys, yes, they were extremely good in that micro area that they worked on, but they were also deep thinkers. And that's sort of the point that I was getting at in those conversations among those, uh, those physicists. They were constantly pushing each other's boundaries. And it's out of that pushing of boundaries that came these great insights.
I love it. I love it. And I completely agree, but I want to press you a little bit because I want to, I want to really press you on how to do that because when all of the incentives right. are otherwise, it's, it gets difficult for, because everyone likes to say what you just said, right? It's a very popular refrain, right? We all want to be generalist. We all want to challenge ourselves. We all want to be thinking outside of the box and thinking about the biggest ideas. And people love to talk like this, right? Um, and I know yeah. that you really mean it, but you've done a good job of actually doing it. And when push comes to shove, when the, when the rubber hits the road each day and you wake up in the morning and you have to prioritize your life and, and you can only do so much, most people don't do the things you're talking about. Most people will do what is most immediately, you know, incentivized by their career structure, which often goes in the, in, against what you're saying. So this is just what I want to press you on. What is the key to do? What are some keys or some tricks to, to actually um, putting your money where your mouth is and, 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 and going in the direction you're talking about when we live in a world where it's actually quite difficult for people. Yeah, this is a really good question. And I'm glad you're pressing it on me. In fact, what I had started to say before getting sucked into my excitement of the example that I was of, of, uh, from my own teaching was in it really often comes down, at least in the in the case of universities and incentives, as you were saying, incentives to work in particular ways to university leadership and to convincing university leadership um, that uh, that a great deal of good can come out of precisely this kind of uh, this kind of thing now so the example that i give and that i talk a lot about in that previous book splintering the american mind is the uh, the adverse incentives that are built into our tenure system that guide us in a way uh in particular in the humanities and social sciences to uh, value the work that we do along a very different kind of model uh that different kind of model has to do with as i was saying there's a certain amount of understanding that i have in the physical science and medical sciences and biomedical mechanical engineering i cited that example because it's one of the very top programs of my own university uh johns hopkins right that if you're not really focusing on this 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 one particular thing that you're working on there's a very good chance that you might get scooped by another university someone else might come up with the uh, with a discovery that's that's gonna you know push the envelope and get us somewhere somewhere further but there, the danger that we've come into by allowing uh tenure decisions and tenure pressures in particular in the, uh, the united states to uh uh, to, to come to, in, in, in the humanities and social sciences to follow that, uh, that pattern and to rest on this kind of, uh, uh, hyper, hyper specialization is that you actually lose the, the essence of what the humanities and social sciences are all about, which is, which is expansive knowledge, which is making connections. So when you're asking me, so how do we do this? Well, we do it by convincing administrators that this is the right thing to do. Uh, you, um, and by the way, it's, it, this is not, it's not a foregone conclusion that that message isn't getting through. Um, in our own case at Hopkins, our current dean, who is um, a remarkable humanist, uh, who has also written for the public sphere, um, has made, uh, uh, in particular, the humanities and social sciences getting their message out to the uh, to a broader public one of the four pillars of his uh, of his administration. So it's clearly something that is resonating and that's making uh, making a lot of sense. The only platform that I've had now for seven years as the director of a humanities institute um, has, that's really been written to the DNA of my institute for a long time, is public humanities. Um, uh, making, not just educating the public, but having conversations in public spaces with people outside of the university is, you know, is part of the core programming, is what we actually do. And my sense is, Justin, that this is starting to have inroads. Um, again, it's it's a sense that I'm getting from a relatively, you know, like everyone is, I, I, 
I speak from my own my own four walls and where I am and everything like that. But uh, but but that's the sense that I'm getting is that that message is coming through. Um, you know, one of the points I was making in that particular book was that it's essential that something like humanistic knowledge be as broad based as possible, in part because that's what democracy requires, right? It's having citizens who are not just informed about facts, but are able to be discerning about facts and able to have um, a, a well, um, well-researched and well-reasoned arguments about uh, the facts. And this is essentially what we're doing in the humanities all the time. Um, then the president of my university ended up writing another book uh, in which he was making very similar points about the absolute necessity of the liberal arts for something like a functioning democracy. The more voices that we have coming from the top in these university structures that are making that point, I think the harder and harder it becomes to ignore. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. You mentioned a couple times now your book, The Splintering of the American Mind. Uh, I believe that's a allusion to Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American Mind. I'm curious, what what did Alan Bloom get wrong chiefly, and what's and what well, and I, what's what's the difference between closing and splintering? Yeah, yeah, it was it was um, a sort of answer thirty years later uh, um, to the closing of the American mind. And uh, while I make an argument that the humanities um, are essential, which in his own way, Alan Bloom was making in that. And, and Alan Bloom was making the point that, um, that the American mind is closing because we're not expecting, we're not expecting the student, students certain texts anymore. Um, my argument was very, very different, which was, um, for one thing, the kind or the very specific set of texts that Alan Bloom was requiring people. I think a lot of them are great. I think it's fantastic to read Rousseau, but exclusively reading Rousseau or reading Rousseau and not thinking about modern art or not adding or expanding the canon is also not, uh, uh, you know, that's not salutary either. My point in this book was that the, um, the hyper-specialization in academia, the fact, the fact that uh, uh, in higher education, we're in fact, on the one hand, talking about diversity and, inclus and, and inclusion all the time, but in fact, we're making the most exclusive possible society you could imagine by making education out of reach financially for the vast uh, uh, majority of, of, of people who would like to have that kind of an edu education, that we're really working at odds uh, and in, in different directions, working against ourselves and working against um, really a, a, a functioning and 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 uh, we're working in social justice. We're working against an actual uh, uh, functioning democracy. There's all sorts of things that we're in fact undermining by working in that direction and splintering. So I'm not complain complaining about uh, in the same way as Alan Bloom is in that book, complaining about the uh, forgetting of the fundamental texts of, uh, of, of of the Western canon. That's not really what the book's about. What the book's about is how we need to retool higher education in a way that focuses, uh, that makes it more inclusive, open, and, and, and allows us to focus on the fundamental issues that we need uh, and the fundamental education the quality of education that we need in order to be a functioning uh, democracy. My final couple of questions have to do with book publishing and writing and kind of the, the economy around it today. Obviously the, the economy of publishing has, has changed tremendously in recent years and, and you've been publishing books for quite a while. So I'm just curious to, to get your perspective on where things are right now. You know, obviously mm -hmm. Substack is, is very big right now. There are an increasing number of interesting writers and independent intellectuals who are building pretty impressive careers outside of institutions now. And I'm just yeah. curious, 
how what you make of this in contrast to the direction that book publishing has gone in how has book publishing changed in the most important and interesting ways to you in, in recent recent years it's kind of an open-ended question i'm just curious about what you're seeing with all of this and and what you make of it for instance are you ever tempted to buy the substack model what are the pros and cons i'm just curious um what what's what interests you about these questions today Right. So this is an excellent question. And it's, and it's excellent to me in part because I'm still learning so much uh, about this. In some ways, I'm maybe, I don't know whether I, I, I can say I hope not or not, or, you know, maybe, maybe it's good that everything changes. I mean, in some sense, it's always good that things are changing. But in, in some ways, I think I'm, I'm a representative of kind of, um, of, of the last wave of those who are writing books on kind of the old old model. What do I mean by the old model? Um, that uh, you get, you know, after a lot of hard work, you work on your own writing. And by 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 the way, by what I mean, uh, books, of course, are the kind of um, narrative nonfiction that, uh, as you pointed out, that I that I specialize in. I'm, in my particular case, I'm kind of heady intellectual topics. Um, you know, you work a lot on your own writing. You get to the point where you attract the attention of, uh, of, of, of an agent who has some serious sway in, in, in New York, of course. Uh, um, you work on, a, on a, eventually a proposal uh, with that agent. Um, you finally get it somewhere where you want it to be. The agent sends it out to some of the big presses. You get a number of presses interested, and then eventually you get an offer, and then you write that book, and then you see what happens. And all of this I did, it was the way you were supposed to do it, more or less at the time when the publishing industry was starting to get into the boat, into, into the deepest trouble that it's uh, ever had. And I've had multiple conversations with Michael Carlisle, my agent about this. And he's, he's that kind of an agent, an agent who loves the big book with the media ideas. And he's always telling me we're having more and more problems uh, uh, selling these. And, and I don't know what the future is going to be like. Um, and as you're pointing out, there's, you know, there's, I think there's, good reasons and, and and potentially problematic reasons for that and the problematic side would be the question of reading itself right uh what is you know what is the future of that practice that i hold so dear that's so important to me that i also try and inculcate with students still which is like hold an actual book in your hands and spend time reading it and, and just digging into those ideas and staying with them for a while um versus very something that I do all the time as well, like everyone does today, very quickly going through massive amounts of, of, of stuff online for, you know, ideas or information, and such and such and such. So there is that. And the other is, you know, potentially the, the upside to it, uh, new forms of information, new forms of, of, of reading that are, uh, that are emerging that I'm, you know, not so up to date on. And that in a way, I sometimes question myself, like, what am I missing out on by being, being in that sense a dinosaur, being someone who's stuck on in a little bit in that model. So when the time comes, a book like mine is about to come out, and I can start having conversations in this mode. You know, I'm 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 talking with someone who's uh, producing a successful podcast. This is interesting to me because it introduces me as well to new um, to new venues for information and conversation to be coming out. Um, uh, Substack. You're hitting me with something I only just recently started finding out about because, you know, at a, at a conference, I would go and give a, a lecture and afterwards someone would say, well, we should have a, stu a sub stack about this. And I was, yeah, whatever that is, I got to go find out what that is. Right. And so, and, you know, and, and the one, one social media that I tried to stay up on a little bit is, uh, is, is Twitter because I was told, you know, five or six years ago when 
it's longer than that now. When the man who invented fiction uh, came out, well, you you need to have a Twitter account. And so I I did that and um, been kind of every once in a while slowly posting things and bit by bit growing the uh, the readership. And now people are wondering, well, is the is is that over now? Is that even even the way to go anymore? You know, I don't know. These are all good questions, man. <laughs> Yeah, sure. It's fa- fascinating to hear how how you think about it. You know, because I my sociologically I, nowadays I'm I'm much more embedded in um, the crowd that you know pays most attention to this kind of stuff and is you know all into podcasts and newsletters and yeah I, I hang out with a lot of people uh, who are deep in that world nowadays as as am I but you know I used to be a professor and so I used to my my sociology used to be uh, people much more like yourself. And and so it's, it's, it's just fascinating how these different worlds can coexist, but you've had a brilliant career in your own model and you've done very well for yourself. So frankly, there's, there's not much need for you to pay too much attention to these other new models. Um, I, I don't, I don't think you need to. So, um, I was just curious, you know, as someone who's, it, it uh, had an intimate relationship with the publishing industry for a while now, um, I just figured, you know, it's well known that there are many interesting trends going on, as you alluded to, it's, it's, uh, increasingly difficult for, for especially new, a kind of, um, early yeah. career writers working in kind of provocative narrative nonfiction. Uh, it's a pretty hard sell. And I think it's an increasingly hard sell, um, at which you alluded to. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to kind of ask you that open-ended question to, to see if there were any, any interesting yeah, angles or observations that you've had in your experience um, that might interest my audience? Yeah, yeah. The one other thing that I would add, and I, and this is something almost more from my, um, you know, from my academic uh, colleagues, and I, I, I do tell them, and we do run workshops on non-academic writing, and we, and, and, um, we talk a lot about what, are, what do you have to do in order to successfully get your, um, your ideas out in the public sphere? And the the consistent prejudice that you encounter in academia all the time is that, well, that's like a trade-off, right? That all oh, it's, you know, to use the worst possible term for dumbing down. Oh, are you really going to have to dumb down your ideas in order to, uh, 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 to get them out there in a way. And I think this is so wrongheaded. I can't even tell you. I, I, and what I tell my, um, you know, my colleagues all the time is, writing because i still do both right i'll switch back and forth between a more academic book that's going to go you know straight to an academic audience uh, i've got one coming out actually in a couple of months uh in bloomsbury's series on philosophical filmmakers uh about the chilean surrealist alejandro Jodorowsky. Um, so what do i mean by it's a more academic book fundamentally the difference i mean is, is the following it's not going to be edited in the same way it's uh it's largely going to it's going to run through a peer review and as long as i'm convincing to a couple of uh of my colleagues out there and you know i'm, I'm not denigrating the process at all they like the work that's great i'm excited to get it out that's great as well um but it goes through nothing like the kind of rigor that you uh of the relationship between a, a really good editor like i have a pantheon and uh and myself uh draft after draft after draft in which not only the level of expression is broken down and thought about and and worked over and put through the ringer but the ideas themselves the actual you go back to that term the rigor of the ideas I honestly think there is no comparison in terms of the difficulty of the process of writing between writing an academic book, what I would call sort of an easy shorthand, an academic book, and and a trade book, like a book for, for the presses that I, I write when I write these big books for, for public audiences. It's just, it's a lot more work, and it's uh, ultimately 
a much bigger feeling of pride on my part when I've gotten it out because I know how much harder I've worked on it, right? And I think that's an important uh, message to get out there. Yeah, writing for the general public is not dumbing down. It's, <laughs> it's smartening up, honestly. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Never dumb down your ideas, no matter who you're writing for. It's awesome. There William, thank you so much. The book is The Rigor of Angels. Uh, by the time you're listening to this podcast or watching it on YouTube, the book will be out. So you can go buy it on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Bill, thank you so much. It's a pleasure getting to know you. I'm really happy to have had you on. And I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Justin. It was a real pleasure talking to you too. You take care.